The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to today's Barron's Live. I want to apologize for our slight delay. We just had some technical difficulties. Um, I'm Abby Schultz, a senior writer at Barron's Penta, and I'm here today with Steve Liberatore, who is head of ESG Impact for Global Fixed Income at Nuveen, and also the lead manager of TIAA Craft's Core Impact Bond Fund. We're going to talk about the growing green bond sector and how it's evolving to include securities designed to create very specific biodiversity impacts in addition to carbon reduction and social impacts um, such as gender equity. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can write in questions that you have and I will uh, try to get to them before our time is up today. So Steve, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Abby. Sure. So before we get into some of the details on the newer types of impact bonds that are being that are out there right now, can you quickly go over some definitions for our listeners like what's the difference between a bond that makes the ESG cut and an impact bond? Sure, and and these are two topics that are often um, used interchangeably, even though they are really distinct types of approaches. So the way that we utilize the concept of ESG in the portfolio construction process is trying to identify issuers who have strong performance metrics on environmental, social, and governance factors because we have been able to tie those back into those issuers simply being better operated and better managed because they're taking into account a wider array of risk to their business and to their operations and therefore in the long run have a more stable free cash flow profile. And that is more of a risk mitigant um, or a measurement of risk to try to put into the portfolio construction process. On the impact side, the way that we do it is we are looking for securities that have a direct and measurable social and or environmental outcome associated with them. So in those instances, we're looking for very specific um, investment opportunities where we're able to obtain very granular, very specific um, impact metrics that, again, allow for us to get a better sense of how those projects and how that approach is transitioning that particular issuer into being more sustainable over the long run, which again ties directly into the sustainability of free cash flow over the long run. And as a bond investor, we have an asymmetric payoff asset class. So the stability of free cash flow is critical for us to determine our potential returns in the long run. And ultimately in fixed income, you you generate outperformance by picking winners not by picking winners, but by avoiding the losers. And by avoiding the losers, what we're really trying to identify are those issuers that have more stable free cash flow. So you're, it's really what you would do when evaluating any kind of bond. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the biggest impact bond market to date is known as the green bond market. People probably have heard of that. Um, and you, I know you also manage a co, you co-manage a green bond fund for TIA Craft too. Can can you talk about how that the green bond market has evolved and maybe give an example of a typical security? 
Yes, absolutely. So the, the green bond market is one that really started, you know, back in call it 2007, 2008, where there were certainly issuers that were creating securities that could tie back to being utilized specifically for positive environmental outcomes. And then over time, that market has grown and really been more defined by um, the green bond principles, which, which is a, a part of the uh, International Capital Markets Association and has really served as kind of the guideline and, and guiding principles around which the green bond market has, has evolved. And full disclosure, I was on the initial executive committee of the green bond principles, so I did help to write them. Um, and what they were really trying to do was identify um, a, a framework in which both issuers and investors could understand what would be expected of them in issuing a security that they labeled as a green bond. And in that particular sense, what we have had is more formal development of a market where the understanding of what is to be expected if someone says they're issuing a green bond, not just from the issuer perspective, but what an investor can expect to see from a security labeled as a green bond has really helped to better define the space and the market. And, and I think that the green bond market is one that it was makes the most sense for it to be as evolved as it has, simply because for the most part, the, the data that an investor is looking for is well known, well understood, and easily obtainable from an issuer. So, you know, if you're, if you're an issuer and you're coming to the green bond market and you're funding, say, a geothermal facility, you know automatically that the investor is going to be looking for, you know, capacity, but also production numbers. And the investor is going to know that's the data that they're going to need back in order to validate and ensure that the way that they're investing their, their capital is aligned with an environmental outcome. And so that to me has really been why we've seen the green bond market continue to expand as much as we had even last year where you saw a overall, call it 20, 25% reduction in new issue volume in fixed income, but yet labeled green bond issuance was only down about 5%. So it continues to grow as a proportion of the market. And I think that's primarily because it's very well understood what is needed to be done in order to kind of validate and prove out something as being a green bond. Right. That that's that security that I'm sure is is helpful for a lot of investors. They they, they know what they're buying. There's there's parameters there in place. Um, what's what's kind of interesting is that um, that what's happening now is there's an evolution. Um, so perhaps beyond green bonds to include some very specific biodiversity initiatives. Um, there are bonds that are protecting marine areas. Um, there's one that I want you to talk about in a little bit about um, that helps to conserve the black rhinoceros population in South Africa. So it's very specific. There's also social impact bonds. So can you talk about this evolution a little bit? What are these securities generally aiming to do? What makes them different? And, and also if you could kind of speak to the fact that the same sorts of principles maybe aren't in place for these yet. I don't know. Uh, maybe if you could talk about that too. Sure. And and I think what we're what we're talking about in this instance kind of goes back to where we are as far as the maturation of the market. The the, the investor base 
both issuer and investor base has become very comfortable with the concept of what we call a use of proceeds security. So green bonds generally are, are considered use of proceeds security. And what that simply means is that you know where the proceeds are being deployed as an investor. So you know you're being directly tied to a solar power project or say an affordable housing development. And, and that concept is now very well understood and accepted within the marketplace. And I think because of that comfort level, what you're starting to see are investors who are now trying to look for more granular outcomes and trying to find opportunities that may tie more directly with how they're trying to deploy their capital um, within the marketplace, as well as align with whatever the principles they may be trying to, to expound upon within their own investment mandate. And so why we are able to really get to a place where you've been able to shift away from not just funding wind farms, for example, but starting to look at things like wildlife conservation, as you mentioned, the, the, the rhino bond, or looking at blue bonds, which are, you know, green bonds are securities where the proceeds are going to fund environmentally beneficial projects terrestrially, whereas a blue bond is going to fund environmentally beneficial projects that are marine-based. And all of this ability to really expand and diversify the opportunity set has been driven primarily because of the acceptance and understanding of the use of proceeds formula and structure. And, and to me, that's why investors really now are looking to kind of push the envelope around where we can actually deploy capital in a profitable way that has a positive impact. I see that that's interesting. Um, it might be helpful, I think, for our listeners to understand how uh, one of these bonds works. So there was the, you mentioned the blue bond market, which is yeah. perhaps the most developed of these new sorts of bonds. Um, yeah. And there's one called the Barbados blue bond that was issued just this past yeah. September. Can, can you talk about how yeah. that worked? Absolutely. So what, what the Barbados blue bond represents is the, the most recent iteration of what are called debt for nature swaps. Hmm. And primarily what those are, and simplistically what those are, are opportunities where countries that may be having some debt issues are able to repurchase debt at market level rates or below market level rates and then obtain financing at more attractive levels, which then create from, from third parties that then create an opportunity for, for cost savings that can be then redirected, those cash flows are redirected to, in the case of Barbados, marine-based projects that are environmentally beneficial. And, and usually how that works is there's it's generally a form of blended finance, and blended finance is a concept in the marketplace where you have, it's a public-private partnership, where you're able to find entities who are willing to participate in either de in, in de-risking a transaction in some form, either by um, taking a first loss position or by guaranteeing a certain percentage of the debt. And through that process, the issuer is able to receive a lower cost of debt than what it was that they repurchased, creating that savings that is then redeployed to funding 
marine-based environmental projects. So in the case of Barbados, you had a multilateral development bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, guarantee a portion of the debt. And then you had a very strong, well-known um, nonprofit entity, um, the Nature Conservancy, guarantee a different, smaller portion of the overall project, but nonetheless providing their credit strength to their portion of the debt. And that has allowed for um, an, a situation where the debt cost was able to be reduced to the point where you could save roughly $50 million, Barbados could save roughly $50 million, which it could then redeploy to primarily um, provide funding to expand their marine protected area. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, the, we, we have a question from a listener, uh, Robert, who asked um, about you know the structure of these bonds and if they're investment grade or not, what kind of ratings do they achieve? You, you mentioned the, the strength of the Nature Conservancy and, the, and I forget the name of the developmental financial institution that was involved in the, was it the inner... American, what was the Inter-American Development Bank? <laughs> yes. So I, I would imagine that's that's where the ratings come from. What, what, can you talk about that a little bit? I, I, we, there are all these, um, yeah, What? How, how do the ratings look from a lot of these bonds? And, and what's like a typical term? Like what's the structure from an investor standpoint? What does that look like? Sure, and and I think is another sign, and you you know correctly pointed out, Abby, very insightfully that that the blue bond market is probably the most developed of of the newest newer forms and uh, of uh, of labeled securities. And what that also shows is that there is a wide variety of of ratings and risks able to be invested in. It is a pretty wide capital structure from a debt perspective on a ratings basis. So in the case of Barbados, the Inter-American Development Bank is a AAA rated entity. So their portion of the Barbados debt is rated AAA. Okay. The Nature Conservancy is AA2. Um, so their portion of that transaction is rated AA2. But then you also have, you could also have a situation like I, I go back to the first, what we would consider first institutional blue bond, which was the Seychelles blue bond. That is an unrated security. Um, that has, again, a, a first loss position provided by the World Bank and then a, a coupon pay down grant that was provided by the Global Environment Fund. Um, but yet, ultimately, your credit risk still comes from the Seychelles in that particular transaction. Nice. So you can see the way that the market has developed. You have a wide variety of risk profiles. Mm -hmm. which really, I think, again, is a sign of the, of the strength of a market, that it provides you as an investor the opportunity to identify risk return more in line with what your mandates are, not just having to be only able to look at, say, one particular ratings class or one particular structure. Uh, it, it's interesting because that's kind of related to this next question, question that Robert also has, and that's just about um, the diversity with the funds that you hold. Uh, and and your the two funds that you, I'm sorry, the funds that you manage, the two are very, yes. they're different. Um, one is 60% yes. in ESG, 40% in impact, and the other is pure impact. But um, can you talk about uh, maybe the one that's pure impact? What kind of diversity are you able to um, have in a fund like that? Yeah, and and you know that's another 
great um, indication, I think, of where we are as a as an overall market is that we'll use the green bond fund as the example, Abby, that you point out. That fund has exposure to every fixed income spread sector and every fixed income sector available in public fixed income except for U.S. Treasuries. Okay. And that is basically because we have been we have gotten to a point where the opportunity set within impact has broadened and diversified through every single other spread sector. So mortgage-backed securities, commercial mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, government-related, corporates, municipal securities. Um, so primarily you are able to create a portfolio that is broadly diversified amongst fixed income sectors with the one exception of not really being able to get U.S. direct U.S. Treasury exposure, simply because we haven't had a U.S. Treasury bond that has been issued that has that direct and measurable use of proceeds, although you are able to get U.S. government risk in securities that do have direct and measurable environmental and or social outcomes associated with it, whether it's through the Development Finance Corporation on the environmental side or, say, through HUD or Ginny May on the affordable housing side. Oh, I see. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, well, and to answer one question that, you, that I failed to before, I apologize, was when you were asking about the term yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Again, as the maturity of the market has, has grown and developed, you are able to obtain exposure anywhere along the yield curve from very front end to very long end. Um, and there's a lot of different types of structures as well. You have a lot of thinking funds that may be associated with project finance deals. Um, you also have a lot of secured transactions. You have transactions that, like we mentioned before, have support functions or support tranches associated with them or guarantees. So it is a very robust market from a portfolio construction opportunity set. That's great. Um, I want to, since we're, since the headline of our talk is biodiversity bonds, I, I wanted to bring up this rhino bond and ask yeah. if you could describe how that works. Um, it's, it's, I get the, the technical name for it, or I guess the formal name of it is the World Bank Wildlife Conservation Bond. Um, and this, this was a year ago, right? That it, it that it was mm -hmm. sold. How, how did that bond work? Yes. And, and this is a bond, this, this is a good representation of a security that we are are calling success for payment structure mm. and in this particular instance what occurred was that proceeds from this particular security were were provided to two game parks in south africa to provide additional funding to encourage and support the growth of the black rhino population in those two parks Okay. And what ends up happening is ultimately the repayment on the bond, it will be determined by, first off, there's a guaranteed, it's a guaranteed return of principal based on the World Bank being the issuer of the transaction and guaranteeing a return of principal. Okay. The ultimate coupon, which now really has been turned into a success payment, will instead of receiving your your traditional semi-annual coupon you will receive a payment for success at the end of the transaction 
that is reflected based upon the growth rate of the black rhino population in those two parks. And what it does is it establishes some thresholds for which you receive payment. Um, and in, in this particular case, obviously you're looking for maximum payment and maximum success. And that success payment will be provided again by the Global Environment Facility, uh, which is a sister organization of the World Bank whose role is to provide funding for biodiversity and conservation efforts globally. I see. So what you're really trying to do is, in this particular case, direct capital in a way that can then be measured by, in this case, independent third parties, the growth rate of the black rhino, will be measured by a firm called Conservation Alpha, which okay. then is verified by the Zoological Society of London. And once that data is able to come through, you're able to then figure out and determine the success payment based on a laddered performance metric um, that ties into various levels of success. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, and very different from the emission reduction linked bond that we also talked about, I, again from the World Bank, in this case to finance a water purification project for rural Vietnam that generates carbon credits. Can you explain how that one works? Absolutely. This is another form of what we would consider to be success for payment or payment for success, excuse me. Okay. Okay. Where in this particular case, what you're looking at is the deployment, the construct the, the con construction and deployment of water filtration systems that will be deployed to 8,000 rural institutions in Vietnam to provide clean drinking water. Okay. And in, in most parts of the world, in, in rural parts of the world, how potable water is created is primarily through the boiling of it. And obviously the boiling requires the utilization of basically wood to, to create potable water. And obviously that creates greenhouse gas emissions it also reduces the amount of time that students and, and teachers, primarily girls and, and women, have to spend tra basically tracking down and, and finding wood, whether it's through scavenging for it or basically cutting down trees. And in this particular case, also the potable water that's created through boiling isn't as healthy. So you're still, you still have um, potential for disease to be transmitted through the, the boiled water. And what this transaction is going to do is provide the funding for the construction of the and distribution of those um, water filtration systems. And then through as they're deployed, there will be they will be creating carbon credits uh, that are verified by an independent third party. And those carbon credits will then be purchased by in this transactions case, Citigroup at a fixed rate. And so what you're really trying to do here is create, as we do in every one of these transactions, try to create a template-like structure that can be utilized and leveraged going forward. And what you want to see here is the potential for one, obviously improving in the environment by reducing the amount of wood that's being burned and then simultaneously creating co-benefits of improved drinking water, healthier drinking water, while simultaneously providing additional education time for the students and the teachers. 
So when you're looking at this, this is another great example of how as, as a society and a market, we're finally starting to identify and, and relate the concept that the, your environment is directly tied to your economy. Hmm. And, and this is another good example of being able to show that direct linkage and simultaneously hopefully show that you could do this anywhere in the world. It just, it doesn't have to be only in rural Vietnam, the ability to need the need for, for clean drinking water is a global need and the opportunity to utilize this as a true test case for expanding it is, is proving to be a, a very big benefit of this type of transaction. But again, you're only receiving success. You're only receiving a payment if you see success in deploying and utilizing the, the water filtration systems. It, it seems another benefit too from this particular bond and probably will be applicable to others is this, that there's a social benefit too, which you, which you detailed about the, the, the students being able to have more teaching, more learning time rather. Um, that's uh, just another, another aspect of it. So it's kind of an environmental and social bond in one. That, that's exactly right, Abby, and, and you hit upon really where we're trying to move, where is, you know, that there is what is called a sustainability bond, not a sustainability linked bond, but a sustainability bond, where underneath it is, is are investments and in projects that have both environmental and social benefit that actually support one another and, mm -hmm. and enhance one another. And that's really where I think the market is going because we're starting to see the all of these types of projects that may start out with hey there's an environmental benefit here of you know eliminating the need to burn wood to create potable water clearly there's an environmental benefit but oh by the way there is a societal tie-in and, and societal co-benefits from the opportunity to spend more time educating and being educated but also considering the economic benefit of the company who's going to be manufacturing the water filtration systems right so you, you're now starting to see the market understand that all of this is tied in and if you can focus on the environment you're going to be tying in benefit to society as a whole and to your overall economy that they're all integrally linked yeah that's super that's super interesting um i i actually want to turn to esg and and which of course um where you're looking at all these factors and um, from a, uh, in a in the public bond markets, um, and one point that you made when we talked we talked earlier this week for the story that I did, you you mentioned that you know looking at companies according to ESG metrics allows you as a portfolio manager to be more engaged with companies with issuers on these kinds of topics, no matter what the industry is. Um, and so I'm wondering how that's different than a typical bond investor, you know, the diff how different an approach it is rather than, than for a typical bond manager. And, and if you can give us an example of what that's looked like for you. Sure. And, and we do spend a lot of time engaging with our issuers and, and a lot of what we're trying to do, again, ties back to what, you know, I had said earlier about why we're using ES and G as factors in the portfolio construction process. And why we focus on them is because we know that those factors are signaling data for operational quality 
and stability of free cash flow generation in the long run. Mm. So the ability for us to engage with issuers is tied to that because what we want to do is, is be able to interact with issuers and find ways to help them as well as identify for us issuers where they are focused on longer run sustainability because that sustainability, again, ties directly back to the stability of the free cash flow that they generate and is critical to our assessment of risk in that particular issuer. Right. So you know, myself and team last year had 121 different engagements where we worked with issuers primarily on specific deal structures and transactions to make sure that it was aligned with our view and that we were receiving the correct and relevant impact data, as well as making sure that the proceeds were de being deployed in a way that we know our investors are, are focused on, on, on supporting. I see. However, yeah. we also have opportunities to have much broader discussions around how entire industries or groups are looking at sustainability, what it means, how they can utilize it, and be able to transact and transition that into their own operations. You know, last year, I was fortunate enough to get to speak to the oil and gas CFO roundtable twice, talking mm -hmm. about what ESG means to us, how we utilize it, and how it relates to their industry. And I think that that's always the sector that I like to utilize because there is um, some, there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding around what using ESG means in the investment process. And, and for us, oil and gas is a great um, sector to talk about because we're not saying don't invest in oil and gas. What we're saying is if you're going to invest in oil and gas, you want to make sure that that, that oil and gas company is a good steward of the environment because what we have found and the data shows this is that good stewards of the environment win more business. They have lower long-run free cash flow requirements because they're investing up front to reduce potential risks in the long run, which translates into those issuers having more stable free cash flow in right. the long run. Hmm. So it, it all ties directly back to the investment process and how this particular approach can provide you additional insight into constructing a portfolio profitably over the long run. Right. Finding, finding those good companies, no matter what industry. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So that's unfortunately all the time we have. Um, I have a lot of questions left on the table, but we'll have to do it another time. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steve, for walking us through all that um, that's happening in the impact bond universe. Thank you much for having me, Abby. Really enjoyed it. Me too. Um, and to our listeners, please join us again on Monday when Barron's Senior Managing Editor, Lauren Rublin, will speak with senior writer Nicholas Chasinski and Imaru Casanova, who is Deputy Portfolio Manager and Senior Gold Analyst at Eck. They will be talking about the outlook for financial markets, first quarter earnings, precious metals, and mining stocks. Have a great week weekend, everyone. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.